It's the 18th of December, 2020, the week before Christmas, and this is your early Christmas gift, the Room Now podcast. Hi, I'm Jack Cush from Room Now. We have one new drug in, one new drug out. We've got new vaccines to discuss. We are up, down, and turned around. We'll discuss all of this in today's podcast. Let's start with a big number, like a billion in fact, 1.3 billion, that's the number of worldwide cases of musculoskeletal disease. It's impressive. It's uh, the results of the Global Burden of Disease study that's published this month in Arthritis and Rheumatology. These are data from 2017, 1.3 billion cases of musculoskeletal disease. This has led to over 121,000 deaths in this cohort and has resulted in 138 million, almost 139 million disability-adjusted life years. Again, you rheumatologists are really important. You've been saying 65 million arthritis patients in the United States. I'm taking care of them. Well, you're really taking care of 1.3 billion people worldwide. Congratulations for all you do. Now get six more people to do what you do, and maybe we can meet the growing demand for musculoskeletal disease. How do we meet that growing demand? More fellows. Well, there's good news on the fellowship front. The ACR released a press release this week about the results of the NRMP, the National Resident Matching Program for 2021. And the results are in. And rheumatology was highly competitive, as competitive as the most competitive, meaning those that were um, matching at greater than 95%. That was cardiology, pulmonary, allergy, and immunology. Rheumatology, we had 123 spots. We matched 118. That's 96%. 42% 42% of those were U.S. medical graduates, uh, and the numbers are really encouraging and continue to go up. We have more people ma- wanting to go into rheumatology every year. Our match gets better every year. In this year, we had a total of 338 people who expressed an interest in rheumatology. However, only 73% of them matched, meaning that there's still people that would go into rheumatology if they could have. So the ACR is looking into why and how, and we need to get those people in to meet our unmet needs for manpower for the future. But this is encouraging data. You can read the ACR press release and some other data on our website. Uh, While we were at ACR, there was an important study published in the New England Journal. This is called the Rhapsody Study or the Rhapsody Trial. It was a phase three trial that was designed to look at the efficacy and safety of Rolodicept an IL-1 inhibitor in patients who had refractory recurrent pericarditis. You may know that that population um, is a unique population in the cardiology world. They usually treat them with colchicine or steroids, and they're often refractory. And they really, in fact, seem to have an auto-inflammatory condition because of some basic work done and also the fact that they respond really well to inflammasome inhibition by colchicine steroids, but also with interleukin-1 inhibitors. A few years ago, there was a plenary session at the ACR showing that an IL-1 inhibitor worked great in such patients. This study was a fairly large trial, 86 patients who received Rolonicept as an open-label run-in, and it was sort of a JIA design. They give them the drug at the outset. Those who respond, they do a double-blind randomized withdrawal, or they stay on the drug. 86 patients got the drug uh, at their primary endpoint. They were re-randomized, and it was only the people who went on placebo who had the flare rates and more pericarditis. So this is exciting data for the makers of Rolonicept. I guess they're going to go for this indication, would be my guess, based on the design of this trial. Uh, And the problem, of course, is that the cost of the drug. This is a $5,000 a week 
IL-1 inhibitor, largely because it was marketed towards the cryopyrin-associated periodic syndromes, which are rare, 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 but then again, so is uh, recurrent pericarditis. So an interesting trial. Um, another interesting study was posted this week about the association between all-cause mortality and, of all things, peripheral neuropathy. The data comes from the NHANES study, an NIH-sponsored uh, survey of the U.S. population, uh, and is backed up by um, supplemental uh, chart data. And in their survey, they found that either 11.6 or 13.5% of the population has peripheral neuropathy. Those two numbers apply to those without diabetes and those with diabetes. And what they found was that neuropathy, uh, neuropathy was an independent risk factor for all-cause mortality with uh, an increased risk of either 31 or 49%, depending on whether you did not or did have uh, diabetes. Suggesting that, as an independent risk factor, uh, death here was not solely related to the uh, co-occurrence of diabetes, and that there must be other comorbidities and other reasons, and that maybe you should be looking at your peripheral neuropathy patients somewhat differently in the future. I think interesting data. There were two big-time reports in a regulatory sense this week. One was the approval of a new drug, and second was a withdrawal of a potential new drug. First, belimumab was actually approved by the FDA this week for use in lupus nephritis. As you know, it was approved in lupus a few years ago. Uh, has done well with a general lupus indication. Um, last year, it was approved for use in pediatric lupus, both at the IV and also now subcutaneous dose. In adults, that's 200 milligrams given once a week. IV is 10 milligrams given roughly every four weeks. And um, 10 milligrams per kilogram every four weeks. And now this new indication. So this has been the latest rage in lupus trials to get away from global lupus outcome endpoints like the SLEDI or SLIC or the SRI4 we've talked about. These are general lupus improvement parameters. Uh, and now going towards more specific organ damage as an, out, as an outcome measure. In this case, there are a number of studies that have gone on in the last few years looking at lupus nephritis as a primary end, uh, indication and primary endpoint. The BLISS-LN, standing for lupus nephritis study, is a phase three trial with belimumab being used in patients with active nephritis. And they either receive placebo or belimumab, uh, IV, uh, and they stayed on their background standard of care, which could have been cytoxin, mycophenolate, azathioprine, etc. The primary endpoint here was a renal one. It's called the PERR, or the primary efficacy renal response, based on the urine to protein creatinine ratio. And using a very long endpoint of 104 weeks, two years, they showed that belimumab was better than placebo on top of background therapy with a response rate of 43% versus 32%, and that was significant. So, what does this mean? Well, it means that, you know, your lupus patients that are having nephritis and you can't get on other therapies or they're not well controlled, this is a good, a good choice. Uh, it also means that if you use belimumab, the data showed that they were 50% less likely than placebo to have further renal events. And then recent uh, sub-analyses at ACR 2020 a few weeks ago showed that belimumab was most effective in patients with class 3 or class 4 glomerulonephritis and lupus. Um, it was not effective in patients, didn't seem to be effective in patients with class 5, meaning membranous glomerulonephritis. So uh, good news. Uh, congratulations, Dr. Rich Fury and colleagues who did this study. I think this is an important addition. The important subtraction in this week's news is Phil Gottenib, 
Uh, it actually does have a name called Jacelica, uh because it is marketed in Europe and in Japan, where it was approved just this year for use in active rheumatoid arthritis. The story on filgotinib is it's been developed for three or four years now, has amassed a really impressive um, drug development profile with efficacy in over probably or, or studied in over 5,000 patients uh, and over 4,000 with RA from the Finch 1 through 4 trials and the Darwin 1 through 3 trials. Really good efficacy head to head against methotrexate or against uh, adalimumab or in patients who fail TNF inhibitors. Great data, but maybe more importantly, their safety parameters look really good. Maybe even better than some of their Jack competitors with regard to uh, herpes zoster or venous thromboembolic events. Probably the standard numbers for all other safety profiles. So it looked good. It had two doses, a 100 milligram and a 200 milligram dose. It was slated for approval in August, but last minute they received a complete response letter. That's like a, almost a rejection, but it's not really a rejection. It's a like, whoa, buddy, give us some more safety information. And they had some safety concerns about the 200 milligram dose and more specifically about spermatogenesis as some of the preclinical trials suggested that there could be a problem with this drug in spermatogenesis. So they had and have two studies that are in play. One, the Manta study, which has been completed and awaiting full analysis, which won't be due until the spring. And the Manta Ray study, which is actually was in progress, but was put on hold with COVID and this complete response letter. Um, those studies were being done in IBD and spondylitis patients and other inflammatory arthritis patients looking, again, at spermatogenesis and the effects of the drug in men. But when they got this letter, um, they then had a meeting just recently with the FDA to discuss some of the safety concerns and whatnot. And as a result of the meeting, they came away with uh, sort of the bad news that um, they're suspending their new drug application for rheumatoid arthritis in the United States. They're halting their trials in psoriatic arthritis and spondylitis in the United States. Gilead was, di was directing and designing those programs and is now going to be out of the mix. Their development partner, Galapagos, who is going to take over the marketing of this drug in the EU and internationally. Uh, they have a pending approval for ulcer colitis in the um, EU uh, with the EMA. So we'll be seeing more about filgotinib worldwide, just not in the United States. Uh, and again, the reason I think for this was the safety concerns about the spermatogenesis and not wanting to wait on that. But more importantly, uh, it was unclear whether they were going to get a 200 milligram dose indication, meaning get both doses, uh, with the company stating that to be competitive in the U.S. market, they were going to have to have both, do both doses approved as they were by the EMA and internationally. As you know, the three existing currently FDA-approved drugs were both developed with, were all developed with two doses, but only got their lowest dose approved. Five and 10 milligrams for tofacitinib, only five milligrams approved. Two and four milligrams for baricitinib, only two milligrams approved. And 15 and 30 milligrams for upadacitinib, and only 15 milligrams approved. Again, the FDA is not giving you both doses unless the second dose, the higher dose, was more efficacious but with, at no expense to safety. The consistency of higher, better responses with the higher dose has been sort of variable with the currently approved drugs, but the, F, the safety was not better. In fact, it was always a little bit worse, and that's why they never got the second higher dose. Uh, again, the makers of Filgotinib, Gilead and, and Galapagos, were banking on their safety being better and their, and their efficacy being good enough to get both doses, but... FDA is concerned about that 200 milligram dose really put this one 
um, on the skids and they kicked it to the gutter and it's goodbye Phil Gottlieb as far as use in the United States. I think the other big news this week that I want everyone to be aware of is not that the two COVID vaccines have been approved. We know that's going to happen for the second one that was just recommended for approval yesterday. Will probably be approved this weekend because the data looks just like that's that's the Moderna data looks just like the Pfizer data, but um, helping us to know what to do with our patients. Uh, by the way, I mean the, again the the earliest uh, uh, indications here are for the 21 million healthcare workers in the United States and the three million um, domiciled uh, uh, elderly people in nursing homes. Those are the ones who are going to get the first uh, uh, rounds of vaccination. I got mine yesterday. I had a little bit of soreness. I'm feeling pretty good today. No fever. No, but and and I had a great discussion with Kevin Winthrop yesterday. By the way, we got a really good video that we posted today. It's Q and A with Dr. Kevin Winthrop about COVID vaccines. Look at it. It's 22 minutes long. It's worth it. He covers a lot of information, a lot of questions that you all have. When we were talking about this, I said, you know, I'm doing good, Kev. And he said, well, that's because you're an old guy. Turns out that people get the most side effects from this were under age 55. Those over age 55. And probably those who are immunosuppressors or immunosuppressors may not have as brisk uh, a uh, an adverse event profile. So the benefits of, of age not only include wisdom, it's a better response to the COVID vaccine. So anyway, the ACIP, a division, uh, uh, an activity uh, sponsored by the CDC, has come out with um, recommendations regarding the use of the uh, a Pfizer vaccine. Um, and... What's in there is a lot of good information. It's probably worth reading. It's on our website today. Um, and, uh, I've taken bits and pieces of it, but I also put in there some things that you really want to know about, and that's immunocompromised hosts. What they state is that basically such people were not included in the trials. And remember, for both drugs, one was 30,000, one was 40,000, so 70,000 patients included in these two vaccine trials from Pfizer, BioNTech, and then also from Moderna, all both vaccines being mRNA vaccines, um, 70,000 patients, but autoimmune um, and, 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 and immunosuppressed patients were not in, allowed to be in the study, although the studies did include patients with stable HIV, and we don't know what the sub-analyses have shown on that yet because they haven't been presented. But they, uh, in the wording for these vaccines is a reminder that patients who are immunosuppressed or on immunosuppressed may be at increased risk for more severe covid and we'll discuss that in our next report, whether that's true or not. They also want everyone to know that um, this statement, I'm going to read the statement that they have. Immunocompromised individuals may receive COVID-19 vaccination if they have no contraindications to vaccination. However, they should be counseled about the unknown vaccine safety profile and the effectiveness of such vaccines in immunocompromised populations, as well as the potential for a reduced immune response to the vaccine in these populations. They want you to remind your patients for the need to be vigorous in following all current guidance on how to protect themselves against the COVID-19 infection, masking, social distancing, uh, and washing your hands. So they do have some wording in here about special populations, our patients uh, and pregnant patients and patients with uh, multiple comorbidities. They say co multiple comorbidities, everybody should get it because they're in the trial. Turns out if you had comorbidities or not, did not determine what your response was. Patients responded equally well with comorbidities. Um, they, uh, they and also this ACIP group and also ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, came out with a guidance saying that 
pregnant women and women who are lactating should be offered the vaccine. So that's consistent between those two bodies. Um, and again, there's some inf information here about adolescents as well. Again, uh, individuals over age 16 were allowed to be in this trial. I guess the real question is what to do with your patients on drugs and what do you do about those drugs? Look at the video from Kevin Winthrop, number one. He'll tell you his opinion. Um, this is now going to be my opinion. Uh, based on all the research on this, you can say a few things. Um, of all the drugs that we use, all the DMARs, all the biologics, the JAK inhibitors, by and large, there's very little effect. You know, our RA patients, our lupus patients have less than a desirable humoral response. But the influence of the drugs is low and variable, such that if you're on those drugs, get any vaccine. The Prevnar 13, the Pneumovax, the Shingrix, the, the influenza, get them all. They need them, right? But when it comes to this one, is there any special recommendations? Well, there are a few exceptions to what I just said. Three drugs specifically. One, rituximab knocking out B cells and humor responses. The bottom line here is if you have a scheduled or upcoming or planned rituximab infusion, it may be, say, may be best to wait to get all your vaccinations in, including your COVID vaccine, which for most of your patients is going to be either late February or early March until they get it. Number one. Number two, steroids. Five, 10 milligrams doesn't matter very much. Doesn't seem to affect the outcomes on vaccination. Big doses, 20 milligrams and above d does, but can you stop? Can you lower Again, it's a difficult decision. If they're on higher doses, still give the vaccine. Hope that they get a response or get them off the steroids or get them down on the steroids and then give them the, the, the vaccine. And the last one, the interesting one is methotrexate. While many of our drugs uh, seem to have modest effects on vaccination, uh, there are very consistent effects with a, a diminution, diminution or uh, a dumbing down of the immune response when you're on methotrexate weekly as we use it. Uh, it's pretty consistent. And that led to the research that Kevin was involved with, Park et al. It's been published about you get the influenza vaccine, you hold methotrexate for two weeks. Not long enough for the RA patients to flare, but long enough for patients to get a better immune response to the influenza vaccine. That's the current guideline. That's the current standard of care that everybody should be practicing. But does holding methotrexate apply to all the vaccines? And you really can't say that because it really hasn't been studied. And I, uh, I don't know if there's a real harm in holding it for two weeks. But in the case of COVID-19 vaccination, it's not that simple because there's two vaccinations. There's the first one. Three weeks later is the second one with the Pfizer vaccine. There's the first one. And then four weeks later is the second one with the Moderna vaccine. Do you hold it for two weeks around each of those? Does that mean you're going to be off the drug for two weeks, three weeks, five weeks, six weeks? Obviously, being off methotrexate that long, you're going to flare. And that's a bad thing. Inflammation is the worst thing you can do as far as risk, right? So keeping the patient controlled is the best thing you can do as far as any risk, including a drug risk. So again, we don't really know the answer to the question. We discussed it. We said there are two options, which are probably safe and reasonable at this point. One, continue the methotrexate. Don't worry about it. Leave the gun. Take the cannoli. Again, sorry for the reference. I couldn't help myself. The second option, which Kevin and I liked, was maybe holding methotrexate for the first vaccination with either of the two vaccines, letting your T-cells get a good memory response so that when they get challenged again, you get this gigantic amnestic response that goes berserk, and that's what you want, that's what you want to see, really a high amount uh, of antibodies being produced 
And again, right now, I got my vaccine. I've got almost no antibodies right now to the spike protein. Uh, and they're really just floundering right here. They're waiting for me to get that second vaccine, and then they're going to shoot up like crazy. So again, maybe if you're going to hold it, just hold it for the first one. That's my expert opinion. That's Kevin's expert opinion. Look at the video. The ACR has a task force coming out um, with a guidance on this that probably going to be published somewhere around January, well ahead of the time that you have to advise your patients on what, in fact, to do when the drug is going to be made available to them. Again, you're a little bit stuck as my uh, Catherine Dow, my partner, reminds me, in the situation of your patients who happen to be healthcare providers who are frontline who want to get this vaccine, what do you tell them? Well, kind of just what I just told you. Listen to the video. Kevin will tell you more about what he recommends. Our last report for the day and for the year is this report about whether um, there's a higher risk of COVID infection and COVID complications in systemic autoimmune disease. You know, the data up that we've been reporting up until now say a few things. Your patients in general are doing great. They really don't seem to be at any higher risk. There's not higher death rates in, 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 in this situation. The people, uh, it seems that when people are well controlled on the medicines you use, that seems to be protective in many ways. The patients who do the best are the ones who are taking the most aggressive therapy. That would include the TNF inhibitors, especially the TNF inhibitors, but all biologics and even the JAK inhibitors. The people who are doing the worst, the people who are on high dose steroids, 10 milligrams or more, or who are on just simple DMARDs. They're the ones who have slightly higher rates of hospitalization, mechanical ventilation, etc. In this particular analysis, they did not look at disease act. Oh, and the last thing is disease activity. Inflammatory arthritis seem to fare better than do autoimmune patients. And it seems that disease activity is the big determinant of whether your autoimmune patients are not going to do well with COVID if they get COVID. So again, disease control is very, very important. In this particular report that's in arthritis and rheumatology uh, currently, uh, it's about the COVID risk in systemic autoimmune patients. It's a single center EMR analysis. They looked at over 2,400 patients with systemic autoimmune disease who were COVID infected and compared them to over 100,000 COVID infected individuals without systemic autoimmune disease. They did a matched cohort study, 2,400 in both groups. And overall, the systemic autoimmune patients in first analysis had a higher risk of hospitalization, 14% higher. ICU admission, 32% higher. Renal disease, 81% higher. And VTE, 74% higher. However, when they did a secondary analysis where they corrected for the comorbidities, all those risks went away, suggesting those risks were driven by those comorbidities in everyone and also in our patients. However, the one risk that didn't go away, oh, by the way, our patients were not at any higher risk um, with before the analysis for either mechanical ventilation or death. But when they did a, again, a reanalysis, correcting for comorbidities, the thing that remained was a higher risk for VTEs. That was still significant. But our patients are at higher risk for VTE, uh, and, um, and the patients who get COVID are at higher risk. So it seems like COVID accentuates that in our patients who already may have um, uh, risk factors, including uh, antiphospholipid antibodies or lupus anticoagulants that can drive that risk. And you know, antiphospholipid and lupus anticoagulants have been associated with COVID-19 infection, especially hospitalized severe patients with COVID-19. Anyway, that's it for this year. Next week will be a review week. We'll be presenting the best of 2020. There was a lot of great things, even great things beyond COVID-19 in 2020 that we should look back at and, and, uh, and remember uh, and teach about. 
Um, I hope that you have a happy and safe and merry holiday coming up. We'll see you in the new year. Take care.